Welcome to the Jesus Said Love podcast. This is a space where we talk about what it means to awaken hope and empower change. Listen, for over a decade, Em and I have been fostering relationships with men and women who've been impacted by the commercial sex industry. And it's through those relationships that Jesus Said Love was born. We figured it was time to talk about what this ministry has taught us and is still teaching us along the way. I promise it's gonna be a place of conversation and story. And we hope you learn something new. Maybe you see something in a new way. Fun fact, you're gonna hear music because Brett and I are musicians. Yep. We can't just talk, nope. we gotta sing and play too. We do. Here's the deal guys. Our hope is that as you hear these stories, that you'll tap into your own story and that you'll be encouraged to live and love well like Jesus. Hey Brett. Hey, Emily. You like doing that. I do. I don't know why, but I think it's fun and cute and probably annoys all of our listeners, but that's okay. That's the way it's going to be. You'll have that to look forward to on the daily. Oh, yeah. Well, I am super excited. So we're wrapping up our four-part series on the issue of demand. So we've had Detective Scaramucci. We've had uh, Dr. Don Arterburn, and you have talked to us just about Stop Demand School and the issue of really the introduction was so good to give us a framework. Right. But... This won't be the end of us talking about demand, but it'll be the end of this series um, because we're not going to quit talking about this. We're not going to quit beating this drum until this issue is annihilated. Well, there you go. (laughs) I'm just serious about it. Um, I, I am, I think so incredibly grateful because in the midst of dealing with such hardship and trauma, we have been able to meet some of the most resilient people on the face of the planet. And for so long that has looked like women in the clubs, women coming out of prostitution, women from escorts, you know, um, escorting and developing their own, you know, businesses and all this kind of stuff. But I had a moment when we were in um, East Texas and we were talking about stakeholders and we were specifically there to talk about Stop Demand School. This was a few days ago. Mm -hmm. And I bumped into a woman uh, by the name of Jennifer and she just stopped at our lovely table to kind of look at some products. And I engaged her and just was like, hey, you know, what's going on? And so we start sharing, start talking. I tell her about JSL and Pretty soon, she reveals to me that um, she's passionate about this issue because of what it has costed her and her family. Mm. And I meet a survivor who took on a different face in that context. And that survivor is with us today on the podcast. And she is a survivor of her husband's sex addiction, her Mm. husband's porn addiction, buying uh, women, escorting, um, and... I thought after talking with her, she made the point, and she'll say it again, but where is the space for me? Mm. Where is the space? You know, we we talk so much about the addict, and we're just starting to really talk about the addict, mm. but we can't forget that it is a family disease. It affects an entire family. You know, that's that's one of the things that I um, talk about early on in the, in the John School is how your choices don't just affect you, right? That moment that you chose to answer the ad or you chose to engage, you know, online, 
that wasn't just about you. I mean, that's going to affect your kids, your, your spouse, your partner, whatever your situation, your parents, your boss. I mean, it affects so many people. And you're right. We've not heard this side of the story and it's of most importance. Well, without further ado, because she has a lot of things to say to us today, and uh, without further ado, let's welcome Jennifer. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, Emily and Brett. Thank you so much for um, having me on today. I just appreciate you just, like you said, opening the space um, for me just to be able to speak from my point of view um, and not to take any way, anything away from um, the victims, but um, I... Also, I'm a survivor just on the opposite end of the spectrum. Mm. Yeah. And so I think what would be helpful just for our listeners, you know, there's so many women whose husbands are struggling with a porn addiction or a sex addiction and probably are either in denial about it or haven't found out about it yet. So take us back to how, I mean, how did you, you guys had been married. Tell us how long you've been married when you found out and just to that beginning of your, of the undoing of the, of the learning of this addiction? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we've been married 16 and a half years and, um, early on in the marriage, I had a feeling that there was, um, pornography and so addressed the issue. And at that point, um, you know, kind of worked through that, thought thought it was resolved. Then years later, found out it was still an issue. And then, um, you know, so kind of walked on through some, definitely some rocky years in our marriage. And then, um, five years ago, I discovered that he was, um, having an affair. So when I confronted him about the affair and, um, he, you know, I just said, Hey, how many other women has, have there been? And he just nonchalantly replied six. Mm. And at that point, I just yeah. took my breath away because at first I was like, you, you've got to be kidding me. You, it's, there's no way. And um, I, I was in such shock for so long. Um, but yet at the same time, I was so caught up with that number in my head that it just wasn't one affair. Um it was many affairs. And how do you differentiate those? I wasn't sure how to do that. And so I kind of went from the shock to this denial because from the outside looking in, this was just not something that you would have ever expected. Um, you know, to, for my husband, you know, we are active in the church. Mm. Um, he was, you know, over the years, he's taught Sunday school and taught RAs and he sang in the church and um, has always been somewhat involved. And so through that, um, that perception, and I think that's something as far as we need to educate on kind of, it's, it's, um, it doesn't discriminate mm-hmm. and um, it doesn't matter, you know, what your role is, what your job is, where, you know, what your life is like, it can still affect you. Um, Mm. so after I, I kind of decided, you know, this is, um, this is an issue. So what are we going to do about it? I, as a mom, Mm. as I'm sure, you know, Emily, what we do is we just pick it all up and we take it on and we carry it and we say, okay, 
I'm going to fix this. What am I going to have to do to hold my family together? What are the steps? Let's do this. Let's make this, you know, a testimony for the Lord. And how do we move forward? Yeah. And, and I just, I want to say right there and and just ask the question, you just unloaded this reality that, that this, this is a problem within faith communities. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, and, and like, and still, and one of the thing the faith community, of course, values is this covenant of marriage. And mm-hmm. so I'm sure as this is unfolding, and he's just told you, not only do I have a porn addiction, but there's six plus women or six other women. Mm-hmm. And yet you were the one keeping everything together. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And with that, Emily, came a lot of um, protection of my husband Mm -hmm. and, um, I didn't want to see, I didn't want others to see him differently, um, because of the addiction and I wanted to protect him. Well, by protecting him and his story, it kept me in shame. It Mm. kept me trying to cover up his guilt. And I took on that burden when it wasn't mine to carry, Okay, so our list, our so listeners. Good. I want you to say it again. There is there is a woman out here that needs to hear this truth bomb that Jennifer just dropped, and you just said. I don't know if you you could say it more eloquently again, but you said by me protecting his story, it was silencing mine. Absolutely, I lost my voice. Is basically what happened. And I was trying to take care of him. I was trying to make sure that he got the help that he needed. But by doing so, I silenced myself um, to allow him to walk in freedom. I put myself in bondage. So just like in addiction, addiction is a family disease when we're talking about drugs or alcohol. Mm-hmm. And and what I mean by that is that every addict has a choice. If we if we say addiction, um, just because it's a disease doesn't mean there's not choices in the disease. If I'm diagnosed with diabetes, I still have a choice of if I eat strawberry mm-hmm. strawberry sugary sweet cake and ice cream. Um, and in the same way, the alcoholic, if if it's hopeless and it's a disease that you can't at all like control ever or make positive choices then what's the point of AA? What's the point of recovery Mm -hmm. if you're Mm -hmm. just doomed? Like you may as well go drink yourself to death or do drugs. Mm -hmm. And I think that the reason I'm saying that is because when you're in a diseased environment, so the addict brings this addiction into marriage and into the family, your family, and now you're all breathing the, Mm -hmm. it it is an infectious disease is what Mm -hmm. I'm trying to say. It's an infectious Mm -hmm. disease. And so because you're breathing this toxic air and you, you are now like uh, partaking kind of in the disease, did, would you say, looking back, I mean, enablement and denial and protection, that's all huge. I mean, did you, did you at all see that, though, that you were, by, by silencing your voice, that you are enabling this to continue? Did you even see that? You know, at the time, Emily, I didn't. Um, I thought I was doing what was best for my family. Mm -hmm. I wanted to hold my family together. I had made a covenant with the Lord and with my husband, and I was going to fight and do everything possible to make it work. Mm -hmm. And so I did not see it as 
um, denial. I didn't see um, that I was enabling him in his behavior because we were, you know, we were going to counseling and Mm. doing what we needed to do at the time. So I didn't see all those things. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of like, um, you know, a camera. I, I had this zoomed in lens and I, it wasn't until I was able to leave the marriage and zoom out and, and get a wide screen mm. where I went, oh, wait a minute. Mm. that I see this more clearly now. It's all coming into focus, what, what I was really doing. Mm. I was in denial. Um, I, was, I did not handle it in a healthy manner. I just handled it the only way that I mm. knew how to mm. handle it. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, um, how, to, like, how did you discover his porn addiction? For, for some of our listeners, they might be wondering or thinking, is my spouse doing this? Were there some practical things that led you to think, I think my husband's watching porn? Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, You know, at the time, um, my answer was very different than what it is now. When I can look back in retrospect, I see red flags. Hmm. The way that I, um, actually, it was really interesting because it was just a conversation with a friend. And in passing, she just made mention of him having um, an addiction to pornography in the past. And it kind of took Mm. me, you know, by surprise, took me off guard because that was something that had never been discussed. Mm. And so when I confronted him about it, he was like, absolutely not, and denied it. So what do you do as a wife? You you want to believe your spouse and go, okay, well, guess I didn't know what they were talking about. Well, come to find out uh, later, um, found it on on the computer it was it just I really think it was a godsend mm. it was through an email and through that email there was an attachment mm. and that's how I originally discovered it um the affairs I actually found also online and it was through um messenger on Facebook mm. he was having conversations with women and um and you know, that's how I discovered that. And then just had the conversation to determine that there were more, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we, and after that, we had already, you know, implemented covenant eyes, um, you know, and I thought taken precautionary measures, but unfortunately with our world and our technology, mm-hmm. there's a way around everything. Yeah. Absolutely everything. And that's what makes this so difficult to fight in this technology world, especially for our kiddos Mm. is, you know, how do we protect them when it's at their fingertips 24 seven? What is that going to, you know, what does that look like for them? When you confronted him, um, I I would presume that he probably denied it the first go round. Um, was there, was there a moment when, you guys are talking and um, you, you, you kind of walked away and go, I felt like he came clean. Did y'all have that moment? Um, no, to be honest, Brett, no. I, when I confronted him, I was in such shock that my, one of my very first questions um, was I just threw out there, you know, well, how many other women were there? And honestly, Brett, I threw it out as, I was really being pretty sarcastic, to be honest. Right, because you're angry and you're hurt and you just made this horrific (laughs) discovery. Yeah, so I just threw it out there 
being sarcastic and I was not ready for his response and not only not ready for his response, but the manner and his demeanor of his response Mm. was so cold Mm. and it was just, um, six. And I thought, is he playing with me? Is he just throwing that number out there? Um, but then to come find out after, as we were walking through this, um, process and in the middle of counseling a few months later, you know, I find him, you know, in the middle of the night on the couch having a conversation with a woman. And it's just like how it was just so hard for me to wrap my brain around. How do you not understand this is not okay? How do you understand that this, what you're doing and, and I'm just a few feet away. Um, and it's, it's right here in my own home and something that I had spent, um, a lot of my adult life battling and fighting for, which is social justice issues Mm. and being involved in those. I am now fighting it toe to toe in my own home. Right. You know, it's like looking, literally looking the devil in the eye and going, I'm going to stand toe to toe with you on this, but now it's in my own home. And it just took on a whole new world. Mm. You know, one of the things you shared with me about uh, your story when we talked, I think it was yesterday, um, over the phone, is you talked about that moment where you guys walk into trying Celebrate Recovery in the church. Uh And take me back to what that experience felt like, because there was such powerful stuff in this story. Oh, gosh. Um, For one, when you drive up to celebrate recovery at one of your local churches, um, my first thought was I walked in the doors and thought, what in the world am I doing here? How did I find myself here? I am not supposed to be here. This is places for other people. Why am I here? Um, And just so the shame washed over me. Mm. And so paralyzed by what are people thinking? Why do people think am I here? Do they think it's, you know, I have an issue with alcohol or drugs or, you know, why do they think that I'm here? Mm-hmm. And so after you and celebrate recovery and you're, you meet as a group, then you um, go off into your individual groups, whether that's, um, you know, for alcohol or drugs or whatever the, the struggle is. And, my husband went off to his and I was there to support him. And they were like, you know, you can't go with him. You have to go to your own group. And I stood there mm-hmm. and I, I had no place to go. Mm-hmm. Absolutely no place to go. There were no resources. I was there because I was a, a spouse who had an, their spouse had an addiction. Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to do with that? Mm-hmm. And so Um, I went a few more times and then I just finally said, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. There's not a place for me. Mm -hmm. I don't, there's not a, definitely a safe spot for me. Um, and it just compacts the pain. It just makes it even bigger than it even was because it makes you feel worthless. It makes you feel like you're not important and that you're not seen. And so, and even now the resources that are available for women there are very, very few that I can find, um, for women that are in my situation is, you know, they're online. Well, that's, that's a sense of isolation in and of itself. Yeah. We're humans. We need connection. You know, I, I, I find that 
Well, first of all, I find that validating to some things that we've actually seen. So uh, a couple of months ago in one of my stop demand classes, uh, I had a spouse reach out and she requested to take the class with her husband. And mm-hmm. at first I thought, well, why would we do that? This is for offenders. And mm-hmm. so I set up a call with her and, and I said, can you, can you tell me a little bit about behind why you want to come? And she said, well, honestly, this is part of our healing. This has mm-hmm. affected both of us and it was his choice and we're trying to work on our marriage. And so I want to know everything that he's going to, not from a necessarily, she, she wasn't trying to be punitive. She mm-hmm. just was like, I, I need, I need my own healing too. And so maybe this is part of that. And so, mm-hmm. um, that's one of the things that we're seeing is that your side of this equation has been totally forgotten Mm-hmm. Or it's been questioned like, you know, what's your role in this? Right. You know, that's the wrong question to be asking someone that this has happened to. Um, mm-hmm. But but we, we, we don't think about you, Jennifer, as a victim or a survivor in this. And so therefore, you're right. There's not many resources for mm-hmm. to walk women through this. And there needs to be. Um, and that's one of the things we're, we're just kind of thinking through just... We've got to do something because we just can't, we can't address the demand without forgetting all of its effects. Absolutely. And, and to go back to what you said earlier, but it, it comes down to your choices have consequences that affect many, many people. Yeah. Um, it's just not a choice that's affecting you. And so when that choice does affect the spouse and the children, where do they go? And, you know, I, as I said before, I concentrated on his healing. Mm-hmm. I concentrated on how to get him healthy, how to get him well. And at the same time, all I was doing was making myself sick. Yeah. And even with inside the, the church where we were going for counseling, mm-hmm. the counselor at that point that sent us, sent us to um, celebrate recovery he even said, you know, this, we need to work on this together as a, you know, couples counseling. And I was just screaming inside saying, I need individual counseling. I need to help myself. This is grief on my part. There are so many issues that I need to heal on my own. The rejection, the, um, you know, the the lack of self-esteem, self-worth, all of those things that come with your spouse having an affair and not, not only an affair, but a sexual addiction Yeah, and the reality of that. And so women have to have a safe place to fall or this demand is going to continue. Mm-hmm. We can focus on the demand side of it, which is exactly where it needs to be, but we have to figure out how to be proactive. Mm-hmm. How do we begin these conversations in the church? How do we begin these conversations with our friends mm-hmm. instead of addressing them once it is an issue and pick, helping that person pick up the pieces after the affair or, you know, after the divorce, what can we do as a church body to come alongside and have real and raw and honest conversations about what is going on in our homes, what is going on in our marriages, what's going on inside of the church? Yeah, well, I'll I've, tell you what's going on inside the church. Check this out from a statistical standpoint. I just read the other day... Uh, approximately 68% of men in church look at porn at least once a month, if not more frequently. One in seven lead pastors watch porn on the regular. 
and one in five student pastors watch porn on the regular. I mean, that, that's, so, and that's just, that's just the church world. And so yeah. you're right. It's like, this is in the church and we're not talking about it. Or if we are, we're doing it very antiseptically and kind of we're tiptoeing around instead of taking the bull by the horns and saying, yeah. not in my house anymore. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not a, um, it's not a, is it a church issue or is it a non-church issue? It's is a gospel issue, period. It is a gospel issue. These issues hurt the heart of God. This is not how it's designed. And so with those statistics, also what I found is the people that I've gone to within the church, when this was five years ago, you know, whether it was having a conversation with a pastor who did struggle with sexual addiction, mm. you know, have, and, and saying, hey, have you shared this with your congregation? Absolutely not. They would fire me. Having people in the church where I have, we've sat down, had dinner with them and said, hey, this is what we're struggling with. And the response from the man was, this is just, that's normal. This is a common thing. All mm. guys look at porn. Mm. And so when you hear these things repeatedly from people in the church body, then all of a sudden you begin to, that, that voice that, that you're already losing, you begin to go, oh, okay, well, maybe I really shouldn't be speaking out about this mm. because maybe it is normal from what I'm hearing. So there's a silence that was taking place already within your home and in your own heart, feeling like you can't speak out with your story and what's going on because there's so much shame involved and you, you're, you're already trying to protect him. But the complacency of the church mm-hmm. to, to protect the offender is Absolutely. so like screaming loud in all over this and all over your story. And you're not an isolated incident. I mean, you know, like we, we know that. And what, what I want to ask you as we talk about kind of some of those resources that were given to you in the church. Um, and of course, I'm not saying anyone was ill intentioned, which you and I talked about, but it doesn't mean that it, that there doesn't need to be reform in practices. Mm -hmm. Um, because you're learning things now from a trauma-informed therapist mm-hmm. that the church couldn't provide for you. And, and in fact, when you're being asked over and over again, well, what about grace? Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, what people were asking you. Yes, absolutely. Um, I have lost um, many relationships um, because they feel like I have not shown grace. Um, people within inside the church and outside of the church um, have asked that question. And I think it just kind of gets all mixed up spiritually. Um, yeah. You know, how can you divorce your husband? Aren't you supposed to show grace? Aren't you supposed to forgive? Aren't you supposed to do this? Yes. We are called to do those things, but that doesn't mean we don't have boundaries. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we don't have consequences. That doesn't mean that we continue to allow things to happen mm-hmm. um, because that in and of itself is enabling. Mm-hmm. I can still show you grace. I can still mm-hmm. um, do those things. 
Um, but I think as a church body, we need to look very carefully and closely at this issue. Um, mm-hmm. The church that we are out in now has handled it very differently from the, from where we were five years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have met with the pastor and his wife and they've prayed with me. And, you know, when it was time to fall for divorce, I needed to know from a biblical standpoint, even in my heart, I knew that I had the, the right to leave as a believer. I needed to hear from someone who had more scriptural knowledge than I did. Mm. I needed to almost have permission mm. um, granted to me and say, yes, you, you can leave. We want to fight this with you. We want to stand in the gap with you. And they um, have been an amazing support system as far as just trying to walk alongside both of us, not choosing sides, but just continuing to try to pour in and to pray over him and helping, trying to help him get the help that he needs. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you have to be willing to accept that. Yeah. And, um, but the church that I to now has, I, I want to be clear about that. They have been an, an amazing support system mm. to me. Um, mm. Yeah, I I think one of the questions too is as you're walking through this, we can't forget that you're a mom and there's two kids who are also left in the rubble of all of this. So how do you parent through addiction like porn and, and sex and affairs and then you're, you know, you're leaving. So how do you talk to your kids about this and what have you said to them? You know, that has been one of the hardest, um, the hardest parts. And it's because I, I came from a, um, from parents who were divorced mm. and I, that was one of the reasons I fought so hard for my marriage because I said, I do not want my children to have to go through this. And because it is so difficult and it came to the point where I stayed in that marriage for five years and I stayed because of my kids. Mm-hmm. Plain and simple. After I found out about the affair, I was trying to hold it together because of my kids and for my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, what I have now learned as as I've continued to heal and through therapy and open conversations with my kiddos is um, on this side of it, now that um, he is no longer in the home, mm-hmm. there is such a peace in our home. Mm-hmm. The kids were were picking up on everything anyway, mm-hmm. um, no matter how hard I tried to make sure everything looked okay on the surface, they, they knew, they knew the heartbeat of this home. They knew the family, they knew our actions and our looks and our words. And so they were always on edge. And, um, and so it was, it was difficult to finally come to that decision. But when I did, and as I was going through counseling, you know, they were able to walk me through how to discuss these issues with my kids. And, um, you know, and so I always feel honesty is the best policy as far as, you know, let's just talk about this. Yeah. Um, okay, kids, this is what's, this is what's happening. And it was so interesting because my youngest daughter was able to go. I, I know exactly when you found out, I can remember that night. I didn't mm-hmm. know that's what it was, but now that I think back on it, 
Um, she was eight at the time, and she mm-hmm. said, I remember that night. This is exactly what we were doing, and she was right. Wow. Um, and so they're so much smarter than we give them <laughs> credit for. And so um, my kids know um, that their dad had an affair. My kids know that their dad um, has had multiple affairs because I felt it's it's part of the issue. It's I don't want to be sweeping things under the rug anymore in our own home. Yeah. And so I had to do that very respectfully um, because that is their dad, mm-hmm. and I am not going to disrespect their dad to them. I, but I, at the same time, I want to be honest with them yeah. and say this is an issue. How do we how do we stop this you know from continuing in our family um, and this generational sin? How do we do that? What does that look like? And so um, you know, and so so they know, mm-hmm. and it has been a great um, experience to be able to say, always always be careful about your choices. Mm. Every single choice that you make from here on out has consequences and affects many, many people. And mm. this is an example from that. Mm. And so, unfortunately, it just kind of really drives that point home to them. But they know that, um, you know, what pornography is. They know what addiction is. They mm. know what affairs are. And, you know, they know as much as they can for their age. Yeah, um, right. You know, there will come a time where when they are ready and they ask questions, we'll have more discussion, yeah. um, you know, but for now they know. And, and I think that they need to, because it is allowed for us to continue to foster open communication and to know that they can, they can have trust. They can mm-hmm. continue to pray for their dad. Um, and, and what that looks like. Hmm. Did they, when, or did you, when you were discovering everything and I'm, I'm taking it back here a little bit, but I just, I want to clarify because I'm sure all of it feels so confusing when you're in the discovery phase. And like you said, your whole lens is now looking very different when you look back over your life um, and or over your marriage together. And when he said there are six other women, um, were those, did you ask clarifying? I know it was like, you said just a blow and you weren't re- expecting his kind of cool, calm and collected nonchalant response. Mm-hmm. Did you, were you able to like ask more questions or how did you find out about Facebook and how did you, I mean, the email, were you checking those places? Did you find receipts? Had he bought escorting services anywhere? Um, you know, transactional things through your bank account, like, I know when we go into that hyper alert stage, like sometimes we can go just, you know, digging through everything to try to Mm -hmm. find what exactly is going on. Um, So how did, yeah, what was that like when you're going back and kind of discovering all these things? Well, um, in the beginning, like I said, it was shock. And then it went into a discovery phase. (laughs) You know, it was, I'm very much, I want to answer to everything. I want to know the why behind everything. I, I want all the answers. I want Mm -hmm. it all out in front of me to be able to deal with it. And, um, but when I would ask the questions, um, 
You know, in the beginning, it was just uh, just a bit of information here, a bit of information there. And then at one point, I can remember thinking, is it really going to matter? Mm-hmm. If I know everything that there is to matter, I mean, to know, is it really going to make a difference in this? Right. And the answer, you know, was at the time was, no, I don't think it is. Well, as time goes on, you know, five years later, I can remember right before I filed and saying, you know, tell me about them. What were their names? Where were they at? I want to know all the details. And his response was, that was five years ago. What difference does it make? Hmm. Well, it still makes a lot of difference. I need to know these things to be able to heal, to be able to walk forward. Give me the courtesy of, Hmm. you know, some of the courtesy of, of answering these questions. But when I went into the discovery phase, it had really uncovered so much that I was not aware of. And when you're in an addiction of, of any sort, but I'm going to just speak from, you know, the sexual addiction, mm-hmm. there are so many other issues that go along with it. Yeah. Um, whether, um, you know, I've discovered other bank accounts, I discovered yeah. receipts, you know, for hotels, um, in Florida, I discovered, um, just so many things that I did not know. I discovered we were in debt. I discovered he didn't file taxes. I discovered, Mm. I mean, it just continued to, um, every time I, I, I thought I knew everything, I've discovered one more thing. And through this process, to me, I sit back and think, what, this was my life for 16 years. Wow. I, you know, how did this happen? I am a smart person. So how did this happen right underneath my nose? <laughs> and a lot of it was because, number one, he's my husband and I trusted him until he gave me reason not to. And then it was, you know, so you don't think about these things. You just trust your husband to take care of them and and to lead the home and to be the leader. And um, But once you discover these things, you begin to question your life, who mm. you are, what you've been through and, and grieve. Oh my goodness. You grieve mm. the life that you've had. You grieve the life that you thought you had, yeah. but you really didn't. And then you grieve what you will never have. Yes. You know, I'll never know what it's like to be married for 20 years. I'll never know, you know, these things like that. What is that going to look like? Um, and so, it mm. took on a life of its own. And what I've discovered through, you know, trauma-based therapy is I now have to look through the lens of I need to go into everything with curiosity mm. and not certainty. Mm. I will never get an answer for some of my questions. Yeah. So I can either continue every day to drive myself crazy trying to, you know, put all the the pieces in place and to connect the dots and have all the answers. The reality is I'm never going to know. I'm never going to know because I never know if he would tell me the truth and it's not what's important anymore. Um, what's important now is, is finding healing, you know, for the kids and to help other women Mm -hmm. in the same situation. And, um, but to look with, you know, that, that curiosity, Mm. I can look at it and go, okay, I Mm. wonder about, but it doesn't mean that I have to have 
a conclusion. That's really good, Jennifer. And that is hard work. It's like, so hard. Emily. Oh uh, my goodness. It's so hard. Like you Especially, didn't get there overnight. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's still, a, it's still a daily struggle. Hey, um, hey, yeah. Hey, real quick. Can you just yeah. for, for some of our listeners who may not, um, identify or understand the term trauma-based therapy, could you kind of tell us what that, like, how is that different than just regular therapy or lay counseling or right? Yeah, that is well. Actually, I didn't know the difference either myself, and I I told Emily a little bit about this yesterday. Was you know I've been going to counseling and um, kind of got through the initial phase of filing and divorce and what that looked like, and then it just didn't seem to go deep enough for me. Hmm. So. I had the situation, this is what I'm doing, but let's peel back the layers. Let's figure out what's really going on. You know, how did I end up in this situation? How did I not see this? And so I ended up um, through a, at a therapist who actually sees the, um, the victims in our area of human trafficking, mm-hmm. and um, which is, has just been a blessing and a godsend. And she has been able to allow me the grace to see that I have experienced trauma. And at first I wouldn't allow myself, and I still struggle with it, to be honest, on some days, I wouldn't allow myself to realize that what I have gone through has been trauma. Mm. I have reserved that spot for other people that have been through worse things. Uh And I have to acknowledge for myself, okay, Mm. This, what I've gone through is trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, this is a situation that's not okay. And so each, you know, each week we just peel back another layer and we do the hard work and, you know, trying to discover things like, you know, what happens when you, when PTSD sets in or when you see him out in public and how do you do that from, you know, with your anxiety and, you know, what are some things? And so she's been able to give me techniques Mm -hmm. to just kind of work through wherever I am in a situation of, okay, I'm safe. No one can hurt me. Mm. Um, and so it's kind of trauma-based is, is looking from a different point of view from a, from, from trauma. Mm. Um, Isn't it interesting how we're really good at, um, comparing our stories to other people and, and, and reducing it way down. It's like, (laughs) wait, what I, the hell I just went through, that's not as traumatic as someone else, but yet you just used key phrases, PTSD, anxiety. Those are the same things that victims of human trafficking and the commercial sex industry deal with on the daily. So yeah, I mean, I so value saying that because it's important if if you've been in this kind of experience, you have encountered your own set of traumas, mm-hmm. and you know it's just important to name that and put words to it. Yeah, and not only just the trauma itself, but one of the things I didn't realize is that this is a this is grief. Mm-hmm. You're, it's a grief process, mm-hmm. and it took me a long time to see it for that because I was fighting for so long. Mm-hmm. I was always in the fight or flight, and now it's okay. I don't have to fight. <laughs> I don't have to fly. I just have to sit and allow you know 
the Lord to fight for me mm. and to be still and to know. Mm. And with that, it's been, it's just been such a blessing to just be able to sit back and go, you know, he, he's got this. I don't, I don't have to do these things. Mm. Um, but it is, it's a grief. It is, um, you go through the grief process, you go through all the emotions, the anger, the, you know, you, you cry, you scream, you yell, and it's just, it's a constant roller coaster, you know, and I think that's something also to go back to the church is that I think from a church standpoint is something that could be very helpful for someone walking through this is just acknowledge their pain. Yeah. They're walking in, you I'm thinking it anyway, when I walk into the <laughs> church building, who knows, who knows the situation? Do they, you know, or people are wondering why I'm, I'm coming in by myself and we're not a family unit anymore. And everybody just kind of looks at you and waves and you sit down. Mm. Well, from my point of view, you know, I am doing all I can to hold it together. Um, emotionally walking back into the same building and just something as simple as one of my friends just coming over, sitting down beside me. She doesn't have to say a word, but I know that she knows and know that she supports and loves me mm. you know, or just acknowledging just like you would a death. You know, when mm. someone loses a child, we don't know what to say. So we mm. don't say anything mm-hmm. when in reality that really makes it worse. Um, mm-hmm. Because you, it makes you continue to feel like you're in that stage of, uh, being invisible, that you yeah. don't have a voice and you're not acknowledged. Um, you know, so for yeah. those out there that um, know someone who is walking through this, just acknowledge their pain where they are. Mm-hmm. You know, just say, I'm sorry and hug them mm-hmm. and it will do wonders for them. Man, those two words are so powerful. Just, I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, that's really, that's, <laughs> that's it. And, and then the ministry of just your presence to be with Mm -hmm. another person in their pain and not stiff arm or ignore or be Mm -hmm. awkward and not say anything or not. I mean, just that presence of, you know, a hug or a, you know, an arm on the shoulder just to say, I'm sorry, means so much. Um, one of the things that's really beautiful that you just shared, and I don't want to, I don't want to miss this because you had been involved as a volunteer in anti-trafficking work mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. anti-exploitation work. And then you find yourself in the same chair that the woman in the hotel room, in a mm-hmm. sense, who's servicing someone, a John, you know, you, you, you end up sitting in that same counselor's chair. Mm-hmm. How does that work that you have so bravely done and, and working through trauma and giving yourself a voice and a space to grieve, how does that, I guess, impact or help you maybe, or does it, does it, does it help you to relate in a different way because of your own point of pain? Does your work in an involvement in justice-related issues change because now with what you're encountering in your own story? You know, I think what you said a few minutes ago about being present in your pain, mm-hmm. 
I have had to learn how to do that. That is something that has not come naturally. And I honestly don't believe it's something that comes naturally for a lot of people Mm -hmm. because when we hurt, we just want to fill it with whatever is going to, to make us feel better, Mm -hmm. whether that's, you know, gossiping or, um, you know, drugs or alcohol or eating or or whatever that issue is for you. Mm. Um, and it's stepping back and going, okay, I'm, I'm going to choose not to do all these and I'm just going to sit in my pain. Mm. I'm just going to be present in this pain right now. And it's hard as hell, mm-hmm. but what do I have to do to become healthy and whole again? Mm. And until I can get to that point, I need to pull away. I need to, you know, to give up any type of commitments that I have mm. and concentrate on how do I become healthy? Mm-hmm. So by doing that, um, it's like I said, it's doing the hard work. Um, it's discovering things about yourself of, you know, things that you might not want to acknowledge about yourself, but the reality of it and how to deal with things and how to handle things. And, you know, your biggest fear is how do I, I don't ever want to be in this situation again, you know? And so, um, then you're, you sit back and you're kind of judgmental of everybody because you're in a, in a protective mode. You want to protect yourself. Um, and so, you know, with that, it's just, that's how I've been able to do it is just to sit back and, um, do the hard work Mm. and, um, and it hasn't been easy. And I've been trying to, um, look from a different point of view and, um, and, and see it from, how do we, how's the Lord going to bring beauty from these ashes? Mm-hmm. What is he going to do? Um, you know, what is that going to look like? And, you know, Philippians 1, 12, it says, now I want you to know what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I just try to really hold on to that and go, okay, Lord, I know you're going to do something with this. It doesn't feel like it right now. Mm-hmm. It sure doesn't feel like it, but, um, when my trust is strong and my faith is strong, I can say that. But in mm-hmm. all honesty, it, there there have been days where it wasn't like that. Um, I didn't have the faith. I didn't have the trust in the Lord because I was mad. I was mm-hmm. mad at him. Mm-hmm. I have been there and I've been serving the Lord and, and doing what the Lord has called me <laughs> to do. And here I am in this situation. Mm-hmm. And so... I have never questioned him with different things that have occurred throughout my life, Mm. but this one rocked my world. Yeah. And, you know, almost like, how dare you? How how can you do this? What is your plan, Lord? Mm. Um, We've had some knockdown drag outs. (laughs) I'm telling you, kicking and screaming. And, but he has just been faithful. And what I've learned is that even though, my faith has been, has stayed consistent and strong, um, that my trust hasn't always been there. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's just as raw and, yeah. and honest as be. And so it's, it's trying to do the little things when somebody says, Hey, how are you? Not saying, Hey, I'm good. Mm. <laughs> how are you today? It's, you know, today's been okay. Yesterday was really bad, but mm. today's been, it's been an okay day. Mm. Um, and it's just trying to be honest with where I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that takes so much courage to be honest and to be authentic. And 
one of the things that we talk about a lot when it comes to addiction is that in in any scenario with a couple or a family or a mother daughter father son whatever um there's really nothing you could have done better to heal him and that is probably one of the hardest things for people who are still breathing the toxic air to understand because mm-hmm. especially for women and probably for some men too, maybe whose wives are sex addicts, you really think, what is it about me mm-hmm. that he did, that I didn't do enough? That I, I, did I not have the right kind of sex with him? Was I not attractive anymore? Mm-hmm. Should I, was I too critical? And so it turned him off. But when you're talking about addiction, you you could have been the epitome of perfection and it still would never have worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, that has definitely been a struggle. Um, and all of those questions and more have run through my head of, you know, was I not good enough? How could I have done it better? Was I not thin enough? Was I not pretty enough? Was I, you know, all of these questions when your husband is caught in an affair and um, those are the, those are the things that are going to go through your head. And, um, after, you know, through time and healing, what I have come to realize is this isn't about me. Mm -hmm. Um, but Emily, that didn't come overnight. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are still days that I still struggle with, you know, feeling worthy and feeling loved and not feeling that rejection or, of you know, something else happening in my world to where I, I perceive that I'm being rejected about something and it, it all, it brings all those old old feelings. And it is just to be clear, every single person has a different response to this, just like your husband, you know, couldn't, couldn't stop, didn't stop, didn't make wise choices in stopping. Mm -hmm. And every marriage, you know, that this impacts has, there's no one way that this whole thing works out. And I just want to be clear about that. Um, There's no one way that this works out. And I think that is the curiosity that we have to really Mm -hmm discover with this addiction and with these stories is because we want certainty and the Mm -hmm. church in particular wants to say, well, if your husband's looking at porn and you're not doing X, Y, or Z and he can't stop, then you do this, you do that, and then everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. And, and it is not that clear cut. Well, and just to, I mean, just to totally validate what you're saying from from the male perspective, I, I mean, vividly remember an offender during one of my classes. He came up during one of the breaks and he said, I don't understand why I do this. I don't understand why I look at porn and why I buy prostitutes. And he pulls out his phone and he says, this is my wife. Look at my wife. She's beautiful. She has everything. And he says several unmentionable things about his wife. But basically what he was saying was she is perfection and it's still not good enough. And I looked at him and I said, because this isn't about your wife. Mm-hmm. This is about you. Mm-hmm. you. You you could have the absolute perfect wife 
and you're still going to do this because you have unresolved issues that are leading you down this trail of addiction. Mm-hmm. And so just that was very clear to me in that moment that, yeah, it's, this is not about how pretty she is because mm-hmm. according to him, he's got the most perfect wife, but yet he still buys prostitutes. So it's so it, it's, but as a woman, you know, what we're hearing is something totally different. Exactly. So it's retraining our brain. It's coming out of the lies from the enemy that, okay, you know what? I was good enough. This is not my issue. One of the things that my, once I discovered the porn, one of the things that my husband would say when I would say, hey, how are you doing? Are you struggling? Any issues? You know, and his response would be, as long as things are good between us, it, there's no temptation. Well, that puts a lot of pressure on a wife. Yeah. <laughs> sure, yeah. You know, and, um, and it was manipulation. Yes. Well, you know, and so, um, but that's how that conversation would go. And so that was putting the responsibility and the blame on me for the choices that he was making. And so it's finding that voice again and saying, no. This was your choice, um, I, and I don't have a responsibility for that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but again, that didn't happen overnight either. Um, and there's, to go back to what we were saying earlier about just addiction and how um, all that, it's so multifaceted mm-hmm. in all the different areas of your life, whether that's financial or, um, you know, social, whatever that looks mm-hmm. like, is the accountability from other men. Mm. I just want to talk about that for a minute. Mm. Um, I, and that's one of the reasons that I think if we, if there's some way to be proactive um, and addressing this issue and getting it out in the open and saying, yes, all men struggle with this, all women struggle with this, what, whatever that looks like and talking about it and having those conversations um, because what happened in our situation was he would align himself with other men who in the church that would not hold him accountable mm-hmm. for whatever reason. He wouldn't either, he didn't want to be held accountable. And they finally just said, you know what? Um, I'm, I'm out of here. Um, <laughs> or they were in an addiction themselves. So they're not going to hold someone accountable that if, if they're struggling with the same issue. And so it just becomes this vicious cycle. Yeah. Well, yet, yet again, that demonstrates what I keep saying, and it keeps getting met with crickets, but it is going to take men stepping up into this conversation for there to be mm-hmm. some changes. And mm-hmm. the problem with that is that men don't want to because they might get exposed. And mm-hmm. so somehow we've got to create an environment of, I don't, I'm thinking off the top of my head, a, a shame-free exposure zone, That's right? right. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've, you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to own my shit here and mm-hmm. it's going to be embarrassing and humiliating, but you know, you're stepping into a safe shame-free zone in order to do that. What I mm-hmm. think we've done, particularly in the church is it's a shame-filled zone and it was well-intentioned. But, but when people think they might lose their job or they might get kicked out of this or that because they're no longer qualified mm-hmm. and we put all those stipulations around that, that does not create an environment for someone to want to expose themselves. Not, 
interesting choice of words. I realize as I just said that, but expose their <laughs> expose their sins. I'm telling you, the, yeah. the the world we live in. If we say one wrong thing, right, it can right. get crazy. Um, but I, I just I can't say it enough. I think that's why. We, we have really worked hard to make Stop Demand School available, not just to offenders, but actually now to the general public, to, um, to churches and to corporations, so that we can go in and we can sit down with men and talk about these, these issues very explicitly. Because that's another thing that we don't do, is we mm-hmm. hem-haw around the issue. We don't talk about it, and we don't mm-hmm. talk about it with the gravity that it brings to families and to marriages. And mm-hmm. so that's one of the things Stop Demand does is it really hits home the conversation. And when we can sit down as men and look at each other and go, what are we doing here? Um, let's, let's hang some words on this. It, it, we're seeing it to be a game changer. And I'm just, uh, I just can't say it enough. I'm committed to it. And one of the things that we are committed to as well, we know that predominantly this issue affects men still typically, and women are often, um, those like in, in porn, they are the ones, um, being violated. However, there is a rising number of women um, with porn addiction and using porn. The interesting thing that that we are learning to a certain degree is that women are now engaged with the men or with their spouses or as couples watching it because, again, they they want to please the man. And Mm -hmm. so they're trying to learn all of this so that they can be attractive, pleasurable. Um, now that's not all I I really want to be careful, but it is still statistically the majority that, that women by and large are oppressed here Mm -hmm. in this realm. And, um, and that is what I think that your story so beautifully is um, and courageously is exposing is just how oppressed we, how much we have asked women to shoulder. Mm-hmm. I mean, we and the church it hasn't, regardless of if they've meant to or not, they have. Mm-hmm. They've mm-hmm. asked us, they've asked me to make sure that my husband is respected. They've mm-hmm. asked me to cover for him. They've asked me to look a certain way, make sure my weight is down, make sure, you know, my hair is kept, make sure so that I'm attractive for him. Mm-hmm. But don't be too attractive that you cause other men to you cause exactly. other men to stumble. <laughs> so we so need we you to yeah, we, we need you to go ahead and wear a t-shirt over that one piece uh, at the pool yeah. of the church event because you're going to cause someone to stumble. I, and I hope this conversation. I think my hope in all of this is that we're looking at like this one story, but it has implications of a larger issue at play. Mm-hmm. And that is what all of us need to be wrestling with right now who call ourselves faith-filled followers mm-hmm. of Christ. Um, what are we asking for women to endure? What, what kinds of standards, it, impossible standards, have mm-hmm. we asked um, for our, our women to endure? And, and what are we asking our brothers to hide? Well, and, mm-hmm. and what are we not asking? And I, I want to, I know we need to start wrapping things up, but I, I want to, I just saw this on the internet the other day. 
on Facebook, and I won't, I'm not going to say who it is, but it was a picture of, of him standing in front of the Dallas Cowboy cheerleader locker room. And the comment was something to the effect of, my wife was wondering where I was and why I was missing. And he's mm. got the smirk on his face. Mm. And I thought, oh, I see what you're doing. You were, you were in the Dallas Cowboy locker room. Okay, well, that's pervy, number one. And, and the, what the made, Dallas Cowboy cheerleader locker room? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. not the Dallas Cowboy football players. No, the cheerleader's locker room. Got it. So he's standing in front of it and says, my wife was wondering where I was. Uh-huh. With a smirk on his face. Uh-huh. So there's mm-hmm. that. But then the comment from his wife below was, boys will be boys. Oh, yeah. Mm. And that, <laughs> that broke my heart because I thought, I, look, mm-hmm. I know you're just trying to be funny. But I think we, we've allowed ourselves to excuse, excuse ourselves from a lot of, of harmful behavior by saying, I was just trying to be funny. That's, mm-hmm. that's actually a pretty harmful thing that you just let the world of Facebook see and know. Mm-hmm. Um, you clearly don't respect your wife. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you didn't go in the lock. I know the facts. The reality is, though, your Misogyny. actions were misogynistic mm-hmm. and harmful. And mm-hmm. we're just trained to just laugh at that and go, oh, well, that's cute. Mm-hmm. And I'm here to say it's not cute. And if you're the guy that happens to be listening to this podcast and it's your account, hear me say this to your face. It's not cute and it's not funny and it's harmful. You know, but um, the video that was shown last, or I guess it was this week at the the forum in Tyler, um, I didn't realize that it was actually you on the video Because <laughs> he and shaved so, his I know, beard. I I shaved my beard. I had no <laughs> idea. So I'm telling Emily about this video. Um, you know, it's like I saw the, the video that they played and the, the, I had seen it before Tuesday, but when I saw it the first time, there is a part of, of the story where you say the man made sure his wife was asleep mm. and then he left and, you know, went and, and met up with a woman. And at that point, Brett, I just wanted to just stand up and stop that video mm. and say, let's stop for a minute. What about that woman? Let's, uh, mm. let, before we finish the story, let's stop right there. What about that woman that's asleep? Yeah. Let's, mm. let's just, let's start that dialogue. Let's talk about her. That is me. Yeah. And it just infuriated me mm. um, and thought, okay, this is what can be different. What is this going to look like? Um, because it, because, it, did it sound when Brett said that and the way the video cut, did it sound flippant? Like he made sure his wife was asleep and then he went on almost like that was a noble thing for him to do. Did it sound flippant or um, was it, it just the fact that that was the reality? Yeah. I don't think it sounded flippant. I think it was just the reality. Mm. It was the reality of the situation that, um, the fact that someone can make a conscious decision to go, okay, my wife's asleep in this and, and I'm going to sneak off and I'm going to do this <laughs> back. Yeah, it, it, just hit a, it just hit too close to home. Well, yeah. sure. That, and that, that, I mean, that in and of itself presents just the darkness of this whole thing yeah. that I'm going to make sure my wife is asleep and then I'm going to step. I'm not, I'm going to not just step outside my marriage. I'm literally going to step outside of my house yeah. To go and offend my marriage with someone yeah. else. Yes. Yeah, so That's dark. 
Yeah. So deceptive. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's what this is, you know, and it's Satan, um, is coming at, at us from every angle. And, you know, I keep thinking, okay, he's destroyed my marriage, Mm -hmm. but by golly, he's not going to destroy me in the process. He's not going to take me down. He's not going to take my kids down. And so in that, Rebuilding, and I've heard you say beauty from ashes over and over again, and it's it is a beautiful like the phoenix rising, you know, um, mythology, the character, you know, it's just like there really is a rising that is taking place in you. What is your hope as you carry forward um, with all that you're learning? I know yesterday you said I want to heal and I want to heal well, but mm-hmm. but what does that look like? What's your hope? What hope has been awakened in you as you move forward? What's your hope for the church and for women? You know, I think it's just, it's still the same. It's just shifted. Um, Instead of fighting for others to have a voice Mm. for women that have been trafficked and, 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 and fighting for them, not only do I need to continue to fight for them, but I need to fight to have my voice. It's so good. And, um, it's, you know, like I said earlier, just the healing. And, um, one of the things that I want so bad is that I think we need to ask ourselves the same way, you know, that, that Jesus asked the leprous man, you know, whatever your circumstances are, and this can be a question for, you know, the Johns, it can be a question for the victim, for the spouse, you know, for, for the one buying is, do you want to be healed? Mm. Plain and simple. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed from not buying these women anymore? Mm. For the women who are in the depths of this, they don't want in it. Mm. They they want out. But when you get out, are you do you want to be healed from this? Mm-hmm. And the same the same for me. It's okay, this is a situation, these are my circumstances. Do I want to be healed? And I think that is a question that as a church overall, we have to ask ourselves about um, pornography, about sexual addiction um, that is running rampant is, do we want to heal this? Mm. (laughs) And how are we going to heal it? Mm. That's so good. And where do we go from here? Yeah. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. Uh, I am so sorry for the journey that you've had to walk. Um, but I'm so inspired by your courage and your bravery in moving forward, um, for yourself and for your kids. Um, I think that's a beautiful thing. I think God's going to honor that. I think that your kids are going to honor that. And, um, yeah, what a better, there's no better title than beauty from ashes. Yeah, that's that's going to be the title of this podcast. And I, as you were talking a while ago, I had to kind of pull away. I had tears in my eyes and I do just want to say to you and to every woman listening who has been harmed in the process Mm -hmm. by um, individuals, by really maybe perhaps um, ill-equipped counselors, Mm -hmm. um, by the church, by ignorance, um, I am, I am so, so sorry. I am so sorry. And it is, it is not God's heart for marriage and for relation for healthy relationships, what you have been asked to shoulder, um, what you have been asked to bear the quote scarlet letter, you know, um, that wasn't ever yours, 
was never yours to begin with. And, um, so I am, I'm just deeply sorrowful, I think, and grieved myself over, um, what you've had to shoulder and what women are shouldering as well. Um, but yet you give me hope, you know, Mm -hmm. that's the other side of this is like, I'm so sorry. And yet I am so hopeful after talking with you because you are courageous, you are brave, you are strong, you are, um, you have done such good work. Wow. I mean, such good work. Yeah. Well, that's a wrap on our series of demand, at least for this moment. And I just can't say it enough. Um, men, we need you to step up into this conversation and, um, if you're out there and you're interested in us bringing stop demand to your company or to your church or to your group of friends, please reach out. We want to make it available. We're doing some, some dates this fall. We're doing one in East Texas and we're doing one here in Waco and a couple other places, uh, but we would love to make that available. We also have another campaign called man in the mirror collective. You can go on our website and see that, but that's just a space to invite men to step up and evaluate themselves. Because again, it takes me to change. Um, Emily can't change me, even though she tries and she's tried for almost 20 <laughs> years because um, she's one and I'm an eight. And, um, I have to change myself. I have to look in the mirror and go, okay, you know what, Brett? Today I'm going to choose differently because mm-hmm. I want to be the better form of me. I want to be the best form of me for myself first but then for my family and for my coworkers. So stop demand. If you want to shoot us an email, stop demand at Jesus or you can email the info account. We, we get all of them. So uh, stop demand at Jesus If you want to look at it on the website, it's Jesus backslash S D S. I also want to say we have given you some really heavy topics over these last four episodes to handle, to absorb, to ingest, and try to metabolize. If you are needing resources, um, you can feel free to, we would love for you actually to either email us or to go to our website and we will put on there some resources that we have found really helpful when dealing particularly with sex addiction, um, both from uh, boundaries, both from grief and grief work, um, some recovery groups there. Al-Anon, I want to give a big shout out to my Al-Anon crew and fam that I love. And um, if you are a wife, a friend, a daughter, uh, a brother, Al-Anon could be a great support for you as you um, are maybe infected with this addiction. Um, And then also uh, the Allender Center. I really want to encourage our listeners to look at the Allender Center podcast for some great 20-minute um, resources on their podcast for really understanding trauma. Um, I also want to recommend Adam Young's podcast, The Place We Find Ourselves, which is wonderful. And then lastly, we have learned a lot through Jay Stringer's book called Unwanted. Oh, my word, yes. And so we will put all of those resources on the website. And if you've got questions or you need further help, we are available to you. Thank you, everyone for listening. Thank you for your comments. Thank you for your emails. Thank you for your stars. We've got, there's a lot of you out there now. I think we just checked about 18,000. So that's a lot. Keep it coming. Yeah. Um, But Emily. Hey, always remember guys, we don't get anywhere unless we share the love. 
Hey, thanks for joining the Jesus Said Love podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to awaken hope and empower change with us. We want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review Yes, because your voice matters. It's how we get this message into the world. And lastly, be sure to follow Jesus Said Love on Instagram and Facebook for up-to-date info and visit the website at JesusSaidLove.com for how you can join the JSL fam. Until next time. Share the love.